We are, of course, a Jesus church, but we are also a Bible church. So with great joy and anticipation, would you stand? Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 9? We are delighted to be going through the entire book of John, and we are going through the entire chapter 9. So this is awesome. Chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, Nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Then how were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Shannon. Would you remain standing as we pray together in the way that Jesus taught his followers to pray communally? So if you know it, let us pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, amen, amen. You can have a seat. John chapter 9. How many of you remember the 90s? I love the 90s. How many of you remember the magic eye pictures that were so popular in the 90s? You know, those pictures that you look at and there's like a three-dimensional side to them, but you have to really focus your eyes and so, you know, you'd be standing there in like the mall or whatever and you have to get like really close to the picture and then they tell you to just kind of like back up slowly and as things come into focus and your eyes cross, all of a sudden this three-dimensional picture pops out. Remember those? Um, you know, apparently some people can't see those. Anybody in here never been able to see those? Okay. Uh, so they say there's a couple of reasons why you're not able to see those. Uh, it could be that something's wrong with your eyes, so you might need to go to the eye doctor and get it checked out. Um, the other is, is just the approach you take to looking at the picture, that there's something uh, going on between the way that your eyes work in conjunction with your brain and the way you process the, the photo, uh, so you're unable to see it. And really, John chapter 9 is uh, a subject, presents a subject to us, and that is the issue of not being able to see what is right in front of us. And, and Jesus, in John 9, uses this malady of physical blindness as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. That is, the inability to see Jesus for who he is. And it is possible to be spiritually blind, to not be able to see Jesus for who he is. And in spiritual blindness, we will and can see Jesus, see the gospel, see the glorious truths about the Lord, but not really see those things for what they really are. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that this blindness happens this way. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so there is a, a, a spiritual force, the devil, who blinds the eyes, he's called the God of this age, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so in this passage, 
Jesus is going to deal with spiritual blindness. And his disciples are presented with a, a blind man who's born blind, physically blind. And as they are confronted with this man born blind, they start asking the questions of what gives? How did this happen? Was it this man's sin or his parents' sin? That the, is there like a humming happening somewhere? Do you know what it is, Sean? Is there something I can shut off? No? You're not hearing it? Um, no? This might get turned on. Okay, I don't know how to solve that, but it's humming. Yeah, okay. So, back to our story. The, this man, born blind, the disciples start asking the, the obvious question, why is this man in this condition? It's the question of human suffering. Um, was it his sin or the sin of his parents? Because in biblical times, the rabbis believed that most maladies, especially birth defects of such severity, were frequently caused by sin. One of the rabbis, uh, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Ami said, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. Now we know from scripture that sin is one of many causes, potential causes for human suffering. Jesus, of course, is going to declare to his disciples, this malady, this blindness has nothing to do with sin. But there are five main reasons or five main causes that the scriptures seem to say when there is suffering, it may be one of these five potential causes for human suffering. The first one is suffering caused by personal choices. There, there is some suffering that we bring on ourselves through foolish behavior. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, uh, it's the law of sowing and reaping. A man reaps what he sows. So there are sometimes when we just do dumb things. We get in a bunch of debt. We uh, have sex outside of marriage. We do drugs. We drive drunk. We act stupid. We say things and do things we shouldn't do. And we're bearing the consequences of our own foolish, sinful behavior. But another cause of suffering can be suffering caused by other people's choices. Evil people do evil things. Or sometimes it's people who weren't inherently evil, but maybe it was your parents or uh, siblings or family members uh, who mistreated you in some way. And so you're suffering because of choices that a parent, loved one, or just an evil person doing evil things has done against you to affect your life. I think of so many children that are born drug addicted because their mother, while she was carrying them, was doing drugs, using drugs, and the baby's born with an addiction it did not deserve, born with a defect it did not deserve. And so sometimes suffering is the result of other people's sin, uh, people that are affecting our lives. Thirdly, suffering can be caused by just the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world. Um, there are just some things that uh, aren't supposed to be the way that they are. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says that the whole creation has been groaning, awaiting the redemption from its bondage to decay. And so you just need to realize that there are some suffering that's just the result of sin and brokenness in the world because things just aren't what they should be. Jesus is in the, the, the business of redeeming, reclaiming, and ultimately renewing all things. But until then, we live far from Eden, far from the way God intended things to be. Fourthly, suffering 
can sometimes be caused by demonic attacks. Sometimes when Jesus healed people, he would say to the, the woman in, in Luke 18 that was bowed over for 18 years, he said that this woman had a spirit of infirmity that had caused this crippling, this bowing over effect in her life. But one of the most chief examples of suffering because of satanic or demonic attack was uh, Job's life. Job was directly attacked by Satan. You remember his story in the Old Testament, um, the ancient character Job. Satan comes before God and basically God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, for pointing me out to the devil. And, uh, and you know, God says about Job, man, he loves me and he hates evil and he does all that is right. And, and, and Satan basically begins to accuse Job of only loving God because that God has been good to him. He was the richest, wisest man in his day. He had been incredibly blessed. And so Satan systematically goes to take everything away from Job. He takes all of his livestock, which was his living, kills all of his servants, and then kills all ten of his children and afflicts Job with painful boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The only person left alive by the devil is his wife, who finds him on the dunghill scraping his painful boils and just screams out, curse God and die, Job. You think you're having marital problems. Man, so sometimes suffering, though, is a direct, uh, it's caused by demonic attack. Sometimes it's my sin, sometimes it's the sin of others. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a fallen, broken world. Sometimes it's demonic. The devil doesn't cause everything, but he does cause some things. And then fifthly, the Bible seems to leave space for suffering, sometimes being mysterious. We just can't understand or explain all suffering. Sometimes I just don't know why people suffer. Why some things happen. What we do know is that in the end, Jesus is going to reclaim it all and make it all good. Amen? Amen. So Jesus says, though, that in the case with this blind man, we don't know exactly what all the circumstances were about the birth defect, this malady, this blindness that he was born with. But Jesus does say this. He doesn't explain it. He just says to his disciples, it wasn't sin that caused this, verse 3, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And God is going to use the healing of this blind man, this unusual healing, packing the man's eyes with mud pies made with spit and sending a blind guy with mud in his eye to find his way down to the pool of Siloam. It doesn't look like Jesus even sent somebody to lead him. He said, now go find the pool of Siloam, wash your eyes. And as the blind man does that, he's able to see. But Jesus is going to use this blindness so that the glory of God and a pointer to Jesus as Messiah are all part of this miracle. So it's not just for this man. It's actually this, this healing of the blindness, this malady, is to point out Jesus as Messiah and deal and confront spiritual blindness in the current religious system in the day there in Israel. So we're going to explore the story of blindness from two main perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at the physically blind, and secondly, we're going to look at the spiritually blind. Um, so first of all, let's start with the physically blind. Um, Jesus, as you know, ministered for what most scholars think, uh, his public ministry, call it, for about three and a half years. And it was an exceptional three and a half years. Of the 33 years that Jesus lived, most think, 33, 34 years, um, for three and a half of those years, 
Jesus is on this exceptional kingdom ministry. And in that time, uh, those who count these types of things, we're told that recorded in the four Gospels, we see about 37 miracles recorded that Jesus performed in his earthly life. Now, uh, it's very likely and probable according to John's gospel, that Jesus did more than the 37 miracles recorded. Because as you know, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So there are, there are many other things likely that Jesus did. We have this list of about 37 that we can count from the gospel records. Um, But of all of Jesus' miracles, all the things that Jesus did, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, healing the crippled, and touching uh, deaf ears, and and, and healing the sick, and casting out demons, of all of his miracles, the one that we see most frequently recorded in the four gospels is touching blind eyes. Six times in four occasions, Jesus is recorded as healing blindness. And so it seems that there is a special message being translated through Jesus' physical miracles to this particular aspect of blindness. That blindness is a metaphor, physical blindness is a metaphor for healing and touching spiritual blindness. The ability to see God clearly. And so we see that in this story. And one of the things that's eye-opening about the healing of blindness is the fact that in the Old Testament, there is not one record of someone who was born blind being healed of blindness. But all of the prophets, many of the prophets were saying that when Messiah comes, when the King comes, blindness being healed will be one of the sure signs that this is Messiah. Two times at least, Isaiah the prophet records says, speaks forward that blind eyes are going to be open when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 35, verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped when Messiah the King is present. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, speaking of the Messiah, to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so one of the signs of Messiah is the healing of blindness. And so when Jesus shows up and six times touches blind eyes, it was a blinking light pointing to, you found your Messiah, this is the one. Never before with all of the prophets and miracle workers that walked the stages of Israel's history have blind eyes been opened. Isaiah said, when this happens, you'll know that someone special is here. And later on in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is thrown in prison by Herod Antipas and he's waiting ultimately where he will be beheaded, he begins to seemingly have some doubts. And during that time of doubt for John the Baptist, he sends messengers to Jesus, asking Jesus, are you the one that we've all been waiting for or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus says to the messengers, go tell John this, Matthew chapter 11, 3 through 5, note, go and report back to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deer are the deer, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Messiah is here. And somehow the religious community 
missed Jesus when he came. Missed all the signs that Messiah had arrived. They were not able to see him for who he was. And so this healing of physical blindness serves as a metaphor of a spiritual condition that Jesus has come to touch. And, and there's this unnamed blind man who is like Jesus' case in point for an illustration of the healing of spiritual blindness through physical blindness. And, and he goes through this not only physical but spiritual sort of transformation in his relationship with Jesus. I want you to note a few things about this blind man. Um, as he grows in his understanding of who Jesus is, the first time he's asked by his neighbors, hey, so you just got healed of blindness. You were born blind. Um, who is it that did this? And so notice in verse 11, he just says, the man they call Jesus. That is all he knows. Who did this to you? What do you say about him? The one who touched me is the man they call Jesus. In other words, he had a historical understanding of who Jesus was. That is, he exists and he's the one that healed my eyes. For some people, that is the extent of their knowledge of Jesus. If you say on the streets of Raleigh or Cary or Durham, uh, as you're back in your neighborhoods asking people along the way, who is Jesus? Some people only have a historical knowledge of him. Oh, isn't he that guy that walked the earth, that lived 2,000 years ago, that healed people? Didn't he die on a cross? That's a historical understanding. But, but as this blind man gets, con continues to get asked and grilled about who Jesus is, later the Pharisees come to him. And they begin to ask, who is this man? Note in verse 17, what have you to say about him? Verse 17, and he answers this time, he is a prophet. That is, his understanding of Jesus had grown to a doctrinal understanding. That is, he not only just knew he's the man they call Jesus, but he is actually a prophet. That is, he's more than a man, he's someone from God. For most of us here, we've come to this level. We've got somewhat of a doctrinal understanding of who Jesus is. Our Christology may not be perfect, but if someone were to ask us who Jesus is, we might be able to give an orthodox answer. We might be able to say, he is the son of God. He is doctrinally, this is who Jesus is. But later, this man goes through sort of the ultimate transformation in his relationship to Jesus. After he's kicked out of the synagogue, can you imagine getting kicked out of church because you got healed? So you had an encounter with Jesus, so the elders are going to approach you and say, hey, we think it's time for you to get out of here. You're not welcome at Emmaus anymore because Jesus touched you. Ridiculous. So this man gets kicked out of the Jewish religious system, the synagogue. Now you have to know, before uh, this, because he was, uh, had a, a birth defect, if he came into the synagogue, he'd have to be way at the back. So he wasn't allowed to participate in sort of the worship anyway, and so now he's just fully kicked out of church. He can't come to church. Jesus then finds him in that space and reveals himself to the blind man. And note verse 38, as Jesus interacts with him, he says, Lord, verse 38, I believe, and he worshiped him. He has a personal understanding of Jesus now. That is, Jesus becomes his Lord and he worships him. And so really, that's the progression of faith that we pray that would happen for all of us in our understanding of Jesus, that it would go from historical to doctrinal to personal. But listen, wherever you are in your journey in learning and growing and becoming more of a follower of Jesus, we would love as a church community to first of all welcome you into the journey, whether you're just at the point where you're like, historically, I think 
there was this man called Jesus of Nazareth. Or you're, you're, you're just doctrinally there, but you're not personally there. We, we would love to walk with you toward further growth in your relationship with Jesus Christ. All are welcome at the table here, wherever you might be in proximity to Jesus. I have a friend that I've recently made that I'm really enjoying, a, a great pastor out in Clayton who's got a, a really cool church called Generation. And the tagline for their church, the mission of their church is simply helping people say yes to Jesus. I'm like, I'm still in that. That's the aim and goal of all of us, that we're just, we're just here to help you say yes to Jesus. Whether you're way far from Jesus or you're walking with him closely, we all need to continuously be those who say yes to Jesus. And that's the point of the church community is just to continue to push us further and further towards the person and work of Jesus. So this spiritual sight that Jesus gives uh, to this blind man, um, illustrated by him being healed physically, um, it just reminds me of something that's important for us to consider as, it, as we think about physical healing. Because the, the pendulum swings wide. How many know this in the church as it concerns healing and charismatic gifts? Some people say they've ceased. Some people say they happen all the time. You should always expect this. And there's somewhere attention in the middle because not everybody gets healed. But let's just understand that physical healing isn't the ultimate goal because everybody's going to die eventually of something. So physical healing is more than just for the body. It's for the spirit, and it's for maybe more for others than it even is for the person who's being bodily healed because physical healing, as Jesus showed us, is a signpost toward a future kingdom. It was a pointer to himself and that the kingdom has come. And so um, Jesus is pointing toward his kingdom, pointing toward himself here, as Paul said, that the eyes of the heart might be enlightened in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. So spiritual seeing is very is every bit as miraculous as physical seeing. So I know sometimes it's we would love to see somebody bodily healed. We're praying for Lena Emerson right now. She's in the hospital. Things don't look good. We've been praying for her ever since she was diagnosed with this this Lee's disease, the mitochondria disease. And and we're praying for her and she's right now struggling for life. And all of us would love to see little Lena run across the stage completely whole. We all believe with our kingdom view that one day she will. If it's not on this side of the eternal realms, the kingdom realms, it will be one day. She will run. She will dance. She will be with her Lord, whether she's bodily healed here or there. So we're, we pray passionately for bodily healing, for all who are afflicted and sick. If you're sick at Emmaus, we do James 5 here. Call for the elder of the church. We'll anoint you with oil. We believe that the prayer of faith will save the sick. But in that case, when we experience bodily healing, we recognize that that is a signpost to a greater reality. That, that even more important than your body being made whole is your spiritual life being resurrected. That your eyes that were blinded to Jesus being opened. Never underestimate the importance of being able to see Jesus clearly. Unless a miracle happens on your spiritual eyes, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, Ephesians 1.18, you will not be able to properly perceive spiritual realities. You may have grown up in church and know all the Bible stories. Doesn't mean your eyes are open. 
You may understand Greek and Hebrew and have read through the entire Bible. Doesn't mean your eyes are open. You may be able to share the gospel effectively. Doesn't mean your eyes are open. It just means that you have seen and know truth, but your eyes aren't open to its reality. So we never need to to, to only look to physical manifestations as the only sign of the kingdom. When a person's spiritual eyes are opened, Jesus is showing us, demonstrating his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The fact that you could say, I now see Jesus for who he is. I see the gospel for what it is. I see the scriptures for what they are. I'm receiving a relationship with the Holy Spirit for the person of the Holy Spirit has come to me. I have a relationship with Father. That is a spiritual miracle of blinded eyes being opened. And never underestimate the power of that. Because without that miracle, you'll not see what needs to be seen in order for you to follow Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you saw that movie, great movie, Amazing Grace. It's really the, the, the historical account of William Wilberforce and his overthrowing of the slave trade in Britain. And for 20 years, at cost of his own health, William Wilberforce comes against the British slave trade. And in 1807, Parliament finally bans slavery in Britain. Hadn't yet come to the United States. And so that, that work of William Wilberforce, he had a spiritual mentor along the way a guy by the name of John Newton. John Newton wrote the most famed of Christian songs, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, before he was a follower of Jesus, you know that line in Amazing Grace where he says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. John Newton was a slave trader. He was one of the chief slave traders. And he talks about having upwards of 20 thousand slaves he had been responsible for enslaving and, and bringing over to Britain uh, to commit them to a life of slavery. Um, and in Amazing Grace, there is a really ironic and epic scene where it's towards the end of John Newton's life. And he's helping Wilberforce finally get it pushed through to, to abolish the slave trade. And he basically is handing over all of his records of all of the slave boats and slaves that he had a record of that he had been responsible for. And it's in turning this over that he has sort of this amazing experience. At this point, John Newton is almost dead. He's pretty much blind. And he talks in this quick little scene that we're going to watch about having his spiritual eyes open. So it's ironic. He's going physically blind. But in this scene, he says, I now finally see. So we're going to watch this clip really quick. This is my confession. You must use it. Names, ship's records, thoughts, people. Everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. You must publish it. Blow a hole in their boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts. 
They all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts, noises. We were apes. They were humans. Weeping. I couldn't weep till I wrote this. <laughs> I once was blind, but now I see. Didn't I write that too? Yes, you did. Well, now at last it's true. Now go, we'll go. We've lots of work to do, you and I. Pretty amazing what happens when our eyes get opened. When we can see Jesus, we then begin to see our fellow man, the world, and even ourselves differently. When I was just watching that scene, I almost imagined that that's some of what happened to the Apostle Paul, a chief persecutor of men and women who followed Jesus, and his eyes had been opened. I just find it ironic that there's that point in Newton's life, as recorded in the, the story, that after a moment of confession of the wrong, the blindness, as he wrote it out and pushed it away from him, his eyes were open. A man who was once blind now sees, physically going blind, but seeing in the Spirit. That's the miracle of what Jesus wants to do in each of our lives, to continue to open our eyes that we might see Jesus, that we might see ourselves, and that we might see our fellow man correctly, that we might see this life and the next one correctly. And until a work of grace happens upon us, we remain blind. And Jesus is demonstrating before the religious system in Israel, you're blind as this man was physically, so you are spiritually. You need to see, I, your Messiah, am here, but you cannot see the one standing right in front of you. And so the chapter really isn't primarily about physical healing of a blind man. The main plot is centered really around the spiritual blindness of a religious system that could not see Jesus right in front of them. There's a point where Paul the Apostle, as he was confronting the religious Jewish leaders after he had had his own eye-opening experience, was struck blind, had the scales fall off. In Acts chapter 28, Paul quotes this very important passage from the prophet Isaiah. He says this to Israel. Now listen to this, because for some people, this is the condition they find themselves in, and we have to pray to God that He would open blinded eyes. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, Paul quotes it. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
This is the Israel that Jesus is speaking to at this moment in John chapter 9. People who are willfully blind. Because Jesus has done the Messiah's signs. He has demonstrated in front of them who He is. They should have known, but they were hung up on religious rules and regulations. Look at verse 16. They said, about the blind man being healed and Jesus who did it, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So Jesus heals a man who's been born blind, which has never been done before in Israel, and all they can say is he did it on the wrong day, and therefore he can't be from God. They were willfully blind to the truth of Jesus that was right there in front of them. They would not see, therefore they could not see, because they were struck in the arena of their pride. And rather than submit themselves to Jesus when confronted with the truth, they try to control the crowd. Look at verse 22, what they say to control everybody, to keep them from Jesus. Not only are they blind, but they're making others blind. Verse 22, they had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And finally, so frustrated with the blind man, they kicked him out of church. They kicked him out because of his interaction and his connection with Jesus. And Jesus' verdict about these religious leaders is again verse 39. Let's read it. Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world. Now these are interesting words. So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. So some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, interesting statement. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. As the old saying goes, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Now this is a mysterious statement that Jesus makes. I've come for judgment that those who are blind would be able to see, and those who can see would be made blind? So Jesus came to open some eyes and shut some eyes? Why would Jesus come to blind those who could see? Well, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the message, describes it this way. Jesus said, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see. Now, this is important. And those who have made a great pretense of seeing, will be exposed as blind. John MacArthur explains it this way, this is those who know they are in spiritual darkness versus those who think they are in the light but are not. The only thing worse than being spiritually blind is being too proud to admit it. The only worse thing than not being able to see is that once you're confronted with your own blindness, being too proud to come to the Lord and say, open my eyes to see you, to see myself, and to see my fellow man correctly. And if I'm blind to that, then I must come to the Lord. And the reaction often then comes when, if maybe even today, you are confronted with some spiritual blindness in your life. Maybe you have seen truths about God, but not about yourself. You're blind to who you are in Jesus. 
Or you've seen truths about yourself, but you have a, a darkened view of God because of some pain or suffering in your life. Or you, you know truths about God in yourself, but you're not seeing your fellow man correctly. I mean, I quite frankly don't understand racism in Christianity. There are some things I'll just never understand. I don't know how someone who sees God, sees themselves, and sees the Bible could look at their fellow man with racism and hatred in their heart. But there are people who need blinders taken off their eyes. They claim the name of Christ, but they don't claim every skin color as their brother or sister or potential brother or sister. That's blindness. The way that we view each other, we can be blind to one another the way that we treat the foreigner and the immigrant and those who come into the United States and how we treat people who are suffering in the world, how we treat those who are different than us, there is a form of spiritual blindness that has hit those who say they're in the light. But it hits so hard that pride settles in and we don't want to admit our own blindness. And, and I'm, I'm about asking the Lord, show me where I'm blind about you, God. Show me where I'm not seeing clearly about myself. And show me where I'm not seeing the world right. What am I not seeing that I should be seeing? How am I not viewing people correctly? God help us to see. And when we see, not to be so proud that we can't admit that we have been blind. There are probably relationships and things about the way that you have lived your life that you would say, you know, I've lived years with the blind spot. Brothers and sisters, friends, even though you see some things clearly, you don't see everything clearly. We all have blind spots. And there are times when, when, when good people come into your life or when the Lord comes into your life through some revelation and you are aware of a blind spot in your life and it's in those moments where you are aware of a blind spot in your life that humility is required. Following Jesus requires humility to admit that you're not always right. But if you're the type who always thinks that, there's, that they're always right, then it's going to be very difficult for you to have the blinders taken off. Not because you should not see, but because you would not see. Because you're the kind of blind that refuses to see what is demonstrated in front of you, and you become a Pharisee. The other extreme of being proud, too proud to receive sight, is and this is probably where I err, once I realize I have blind spots, then I just let everybody tell me everything. I'm just like, man, I guess I'm messed up. So I just let everybody want to rebuke me. Everybody tell me where I'm wrong. And that's not helpful either because not everybody is wise. Not everybody is trustworthy. And I would, I would recommend that we don't live in these extremes. And so I want to give you just a few things as we draw to a close to avoid spiritual blindness in the arenas of knowing God, knowing who you are in relationship to God, and seeing your world correctly. Three things, suggestions I would give you to avoid spiritual blindness, and then we'll move into a time of worship and communion. First of all, pay attention to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't minimize the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to show you, hey, you're wrong here. It's a great day to know in areas where you're wrong. It's a grace. Pay attention to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Number two, seek relationships with at least two or three spiritually mature people, trustworthy people, who will be totally honest with you. We're big on this at Emmaus. 
We don't think you should do life by yourself. You need two or three people that know you so well that they could have you thrown in jail. <laughs> people that know your stuff. Now, you choose those people carefully. They're trustworthy, spiritually mature, but we don't believe life was intended to be done alone, especially in these areas where we need somebody who's able to get in here and speak to the in here stuff and to speak to our blind spots. Some of you don't have anybody who knows you very well. And that's a dangerous place to be as a follower of Jesus. You don't need to open up your, your guts to everybody. That's an error in and of itself. But you also don't need to be anonymous to all people. There, need, there needs to be people. And, and I would recommend for those of you who are married that it is your spouse and it's someone else as well of the same gender. Brothers need brothers. Sisters need sisters. Men and women that you can trust, whether they be older or your age or whatever, but spiritually mature men and women. And I would, just, I would plead with you, if you don't have at least two of those people in your life, why not? And if you say, I just don't know how to build those relationships, may God give you the grace to be able to detect when God brings someone into your life that he says, you can trust this person. You need to trust this person. You need someone that you can walk, walk through life with. I don't believe it was meant to be done alone. So I would recommend seeking relationships with people who can point out blind spots and be totally honest with you. And number three, be humble enough to confess and change. You will, if you're asking God for it, at some point, if it hasn't happened already, it's going to happen if you're open many, many times in your life you will find that you have been in error in your thinking or behaving. And if you're asking the Holy Spirit to say, like this blind man, open my eyes, Lord, spiritually, enlighten the eyes of my heart that I might see you, that I might see myself, and that I might see my fellow man, there is going to come a point where God says, you got it wrong here. And if you're not humble, you won't change. So if you're going to be crazy enough to say, God, show me where I'm off, he will. But if you're going to pray that prayer, don't pray it and then not be willing to change. Change is hard. But when we change the arenas in our life that when we have confessed to God, Lord, I know I'm blind somewhere, open my eyes. And he opens my eyes and I begin to walk in God, godly change, then the scales fall off. Just like John Newton was saying that it wasn't until he had turned over those records of all that had been done against the 20,000 beautiful African slaves that his eyes had finally been opened. He wasn't able to weep until that moment. Some of you guys have not been able to weep over the blind spots in your life and the harm that you've caused to yourself, the way that you've treated God and others, because confronted with it, you have not been willing to own it, to confess it, and to change. This is not to make you feel bad. This is so that you can see. Isn't it better to see than to be blind? Every one of us who wants to see better, see more, see more clearly, must be willing to humbly ask God to open our eyes in areas where we're blind. 